having uh, Reverend James Ellis uh, from Trinity Western with us. I'm going to invite Jared Crosley uh, to come up. Jared also uh, works at uh, Trinity Western, for those of you who don't know. And I believe James is your boss, is he not? Yes, he is. I'm <laughs> Just remember, he does have to preach right after this. So, But I will pass the mic to you to introduce him. Thanks, Wally. Well, uh, yeah, it's really my pleasure to introduce Reverend James Ellis III. Um, his handle, his, his uh, Instagram handle is, uh, uh, is it James No Middle Name, I believe? Jay No Middle Name. Look him up. Uh, this is a fascinating guy. Uh, I've, as I've gotten to know him throughout uh, the fall and the spring, he arrived uh, in mid-September and is the uh, university chaplain at Trinity Western University. And he directs the student ministries department, of which I'm a part. Um, he holds a Master of Sacred Theology from uh, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Uh, he also holds a Master's degree from George W. Truett Seminary uh, as part of Baylor University. He's pastored in a number of different uh, states throughout the U.S. Uh, he loves to write. He loves to preach. Uh, he loves the Lord, and he loves serving uh, college students as well. So uh, it's just a privilege to invite Reverend James Ellis up. Uh, please give him a hand, and, and uh, Reverend James, I'd love to pray for you. Um, the, also, the one thing that's not on his bio is he's actually a very accomplished beat poet. Um, so, you know, if, if, you, if you need a little bit of conversation uh, uh, material after, uh, please feel free to chat with him about that. All right, I'd love to pray for you. Sure. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks uh, for, uh, for good work and for your good word to us. And I thank you for your good gift of uh, Reverend James at Trinity Western and uh, for the work you're doing in and through uh, him and his wife, Renata. And we pray your blessing on uh, him and on each of us as we hear from your word this morning. May we respond with uh, openness of heart, and may we have an imagination to, to better understand um, who you are and what you're saying to us as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Jared. Appreciate it. How are you all doing? All right. I'm going to take this stand here if I don't knock everything down. Uh, well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I will tell Jared, thanks for the great introduction. I have no money to offer you, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> um, and also, uh, Pastor Brad, thanks so much for the invitation. Uh, grateful to be here with you all. Um, before I get started, I'll just tell you, like I tell many audiences uh, that I'm in front of, whether it's here or the States, uh, I'm ordained in the Baptist tradition, uh, particularly uh, black Baptist sort of context. And so that just means sometimes I might get a little excited, Okay. <laughs> Um, and so there you go. Feel free. Hallelujah. Amen. A little clap. Something, any, anything, any call and response, I'll, I'll take whatever you got. Uh, and if that's not your style, that's okay too. There's no, no shame. This is a, this is a safe, safe place. Um, but I'll just put that out there. So the text I have today is Mark chapter 6, uh, and I'll be in verses 14 through 29. And I'm reading from the, the New Living Translation, which I understand you guys uh, use. So this is Mark chapter 6, 14 through 29. If you have like a real Bible or if you're on your, your phone, um, I don't know if it'll be on the screen or not. Just uh, say amen if you've actually gotten to that place in your phone or, or in your Bible so I know so I'm not getting ahead of you. Amen. amen. All right. Y'all are quick. Appreciate it. There you go. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Herod Antipas, the king, soon heard about Jesus. 
because everyone was talking about him. Some were saying, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That is why he can do such miracles. And others said, he's the prophet Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. Verse 16, when Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John, the man I beheaded has come back from the dead. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless, for Herod respected John and Knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. Herodias' chance finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for his high government officials, army officers, and the leading citizens of Galilee. Then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod and his guests. Ask me for anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I will give it to you. He even vowed, I will give you whatever you ask, up to half my kingdom. Verse 24, she went out and asked her mother, what should I ask for? Her mother told her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried back to the king and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. Then the king deeply regretted what he had said, but because of the vows he had made in front of his guests, he couldn't refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. The soldier beheaded John in the prison brought his head on a tray, and gave it to the girl who took it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about what had happened, they came to get his body and buried it in a tomb. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Your mouth can get you into trouble. And odds are, whether someone's told us this explicitly, first-hand experience proves that it is legitimate. From the earliest ages, maybe it is that we can remember that the subtle sideways glance or a demonstrative stare down of contempt sent our way by our mom or our dad on account that one too many questions have been asked. Or maybe one too many ungrateful, unsolicited complaints have been levied. Or one too many sassy commentaries have been shared. Not to mention, if in a moment of temporary insanity, you've been foolish enough to suck your teeth. When like laser beams, their eyes connect with your eyes as if to say, you better watch your mouth. (laughs) Words carry weight. If Christian community has been our home for at least some time, many of us are familiar with James' instruction to be quick to listen 
and slow to speak and slow to get angry. Of course, this is such critical importance, is such an important thing, because as the Bible warns elsewhere, the, the tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. Oftentimes, words are viewed as the death nail to human decorum. We guard ourselves against uttering them and shudder to think that our children ever would, the angels that they are, perhaps all the while disregarding how lewd or arrogant or hostile words have become our playmates as adults. Or we get caught up trying to be funnier than we are holy. Nowadays, too, especially, we we know that mouths can be employed to spread misinformation, even misinformation to the level of institutionalized, professionally fake news. Gossip has always plagued us as well in, in that we have a hard time minding what is none of our, to be frank, nosy business. Simply, the the case that I'm trying to make this morning is that it, it shouldn't take any lengthy investigative analysis to acknowledge that what we say can land us in hot water. And yet for Christians, there's much more to the story. I don't know if the name for many of you, R. Kent Hughes, means anything, but Disciples, uh, excuse me, Disciplines of a Godly Man is a famous book that, that he's composed. He's been a seminary professor and he holds senior pastor emeritus status at uh, College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. And he, he has written this, quote, if you submit your life to Christ in obedient commitment, you will expose yourself to a variety of sorrows. Your caring, your commitment to biblical living, he goes on to say, will make you vulnerable to the things that the uncommitted heart will never experience, end quote. Now, I I get that this may be a hard pill for us to swallow, but it remains true. If you adhere to the letter and the spirit of the relational movement that Christianity is, if you invite Jesus to be your only comfort in life and death, that you are not your own but belong to him body and soul because he's your faithful savior, if you determine with the Spirit's help to live in such a way that upholds Scripture as the fully reliable and trustworthy standard for Christian faith in life. If you do these things, then your mouth will get you into trouble at least some of the time. Although, for all of the right reasons, if you are this kind of person, you'll notice, if you're following with me here, I'm using alliteration. I'm I'm referencing if, if. If is the conjunction used on purpose, because it's, it's simply because we have conceded to the God of the Bible that it's not a given. Every, everybody hasn't done that. And doing this obliges a response from you. No absentee vote can be made in your stead. It cannot be credited to your account, so to speak. So let me just be crystal clear. I know we're just getting to know each other. But your membership in anybody's church for seven years or 17 years or 47 years does not automatically mean you are a member of Team Jesus. People can easily go through the motions without their heart 
without their allegiance ever being changed from the world, from someone who is lost to Jesus. God has chosen you. The question always is, have you chosen God? Some will. Some will not. And so it goes until the trumpet sounds and Jesus returns one day, soon, perhaps, and very soon. And it's with all of this in mind that I want you to journey with me into the Markin account of John the Baptist's death. Y'all with me? Praise the Lord. In Mark chapter 6, verse 1 through 13, we learn about Jesus' ministry. Ministry with his disciples in tow. He's, he's preaching about repentance. He's evicting impure spirits. He's healing people. He performs miracles and, and voices to his followers not to push themselves on others who do not welcome them or listen to them. A prophet without honor in his hometown by this time, word has spread about this brother named Jesus, this inconsequential person from nowheresville, from a ghetto called Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth, it seems people are pondering. Some jealous of Jesus thought of him as an opportunist, like he's just a fraud trying to manipulate and exploit people, while others maybe with pity for him, this Jesus, figured he was just a a lowly carpenter who has a confused idea about his proper socioeconomic station in life. Especially since he taught and healed with unparalleled authority. The fear of misalignment with, uh, with all of this could cause trouble with the powers that be. And that said trouble might cause trouble for everyone And everyone might lose everything. And so we read in Mark 6, verse 14, Herod Antipas, the king, soon heard about Jesus because everyone was talking about him. The streets were talking, you could say. They would say that in some contexts. I don't know how that translates here to the suburbs of uh, Langley. But let's just go with it. The streets are talking but, but there was confusion as to if Jesus was the Old Testament prophet Elijah, whether he was John the Baptist reincarnated or something altogether different. But Herod's, Herod's viewpoint was, was pretty clear. He said, John, the man I beheaded, he, he has come back from the dead. And for him, this apparent resurrection was not a good thing. I mean, it would not be if you've beheaded someone, and now they're back to sort of be in your life. That's, that's not a good thing. In an instance of chickens coming home to roost, Herod was troubled over the possibility of now being haunted by him who he had put to death. Now, you may already know the story, but it's, it's worth hearing again. So, so this is what happened. Uh, beyond merely being the spiritual provocateur that he was, John the Baptist, a relative and forerunner of Jesus, had, he had been saying about Herod in a very public way. He wasn't saying this, you know, in church somewhere or in a little holy huddle by the water cooler. He, he was saying in public, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. Speaking to Herodias, or speaking of Herodias rather, his brother Philip's former wife whom Herod had 
since wedded. As a, as a tetrarch, literally, Herod was ruler of a quarter within the Roman ascendancy. Herod governed with a, an iron fist that shook violently with paranoia. One, one scholar has suffered from a profound sense of inferiority. And this inferiority turned him into uh, someone who had an obsessive, complex, complexive order, and that that just never left him. He always was shaken and, and looking, jockeying for power. Norman Glebe's book, Herod the Great, Statesman, Visionary, and Tyrant, is a great resource if you are really into this kind of stuff. Although he was not the king, he was a powerful junior ruler, you might say, and he had immense, far-reaching supremacy. So when he himself, already divorced by this time, married Herodias, who had divorced his half-brother, Philip, which was clearly a big no-no of Mosaic law, he took issue with this crazy guy, John the Baptist, getting all prophetic in his business. More than anything, though, marriage was a political power move for this, this couple, even though everybody knew the prohibitions in Leviticus, namely Leviticus 8, 18, 16, and Leviticus 20, 21, that, that regarded incestuous behavior. Surely, a brother marrying another's wife counts, whether you have divorce papers or not. So, as the story goes, Herod locks up uh, John uh, to, to relieve the irritation that he was. And yet he spared John's life because he knew that John was, the text says, a good and holy man. I find it interesting that, that John simply being John, being himself, embodying God's truth for only God's approval, that it produced respect and fear, and favor from Herod. But I want you to take note that John did not mince words. John did not censor his work. He did not edit or assimilate what he knew to be pleasing to God in hopes of winning safety or money or promises of a cushy, coveted office job one day in the palace if Herod did become the supreme Roman emperor. John's consecrated, or some others might put it, John's set-apart life spoke loudly, yes, but his words were no less important. Verse 20 in Mark 6 reveals that Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. Imprisoned, or free, it, it did not matter. Constantly, John was going to give Herod and anybody else the business, along with, with anyone who tried to usurp God's authority. He never let up this crazy John guy. He never let up his call to repentance and, and led Herod to respect him and to be drawn in with some sense of curiosity. Unfortunately, his new wife, his second wife, was two through with John and was itching to kill John. And, and Herod, he still was, was at this point of respect. And so he said, I'm not entertaining it. 
He protected this audacious, wild, honey and locust-eating baptizer. At least that is until perfect patience ran out and the lust of the flesh and the uh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life prevailed in Herod's life. So as it is in the story, at, at his birthday festivities, Herod permitted his wife's daughter, now his stepdaughter, to enter a male-only venue and to dance for him and his crew of government and military and business and other supporters who were present in this party um, in his honor. Now, of course, I I just turned 40, and uh, I wasn't there. Um, I was not there. But I imagine that this massive shindig was of epic pajama jammy jam proportions. What I mean is, these men, these men at their their ruler's behest, their provincial ruler's behest, they came to get down with the get down. They came to let loose, sort of, again, this male-only venue, sort of like how people, sad to say, when they go to Vegas, what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Whatever the rhythmic presentation's intention offered by the daughter of Herodias, the Bible gives us just one result, just one thing that materialized as a result of her dance. Herod was aroused sexually. And, and, and he wasn't just only aroused, even though that would be bad enough, but, but he was pleased, if you dig into the text, he was pleased to be aroused. That is to say, he was happy to be beguiled in this way, even by his stepdaughter. So I, I just want to be really clear, this, this part of the text, this part of the story, is, it's not about testosterone. It is about sin. It's not about the fact that he was a man, it's about sin. It is a detestable situation that bespeaks the fallenness of humankind. And even so, in our very posh, westernized minds, we we have to recognize that, that back during this day, there were no campaigns against the idea of men, especially powerful men, or even some women, to be honest, treating other women as virtually slave-like objects of exploitation. This was just normative for that period of time. And it's in ways that are inconceivable to us us modern individuals with our Western privileges and our rights and our laws that we take for granted, mind you, that, that Herod's behavior could have been much worse, much, much worse. And at its worst, it still would have been accepted in his day, no problem. In verse 22, Herod only adds to the unfolding soap opera drama as a reward for services rendered when he offers his stepdaughter, who may have been in her middle teenage years, he offers her anything she desires. Anything. Y'all say that with me. Anything. Anything. He, He doubles down even on the near limitless generosity that he's willing to display. No doubt, because you know how, you know, men, he's willing to display all of this because he wants to show out for his homeboys. He makes this official oath that verse 23 
I will give you whatever you ask up to half of my kingdom. Viewed by some as an old world antique femme fatale, much like Jezebel, it's, it's then that Herodias, the mom, strikes to rid herself of John the Baptist once and for all. Herodias' answer to her daughter's inquiry about what to ask for is the only thing that she could think of. She just uh, immediately, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. Let's do it. And that's what she wants because Herod isn't about to look soft in front of his people on his birthday no less he's trying to show off how cool and, and controlled and affluent he is. And so the prophet whom clearly the text says he respects and clearly the text says he fears, he's also annoyed by, he, he must be dispatched like a dog whose time in the pound has come to an end. And so the story goes, a, a lady young lady is abused by her stepfather, a, a mother capitalizes on that abuse for her own wicked agenda, and a vile, power-crazed interpretation of a man faces himself and decides to do the most horrendous thing so that he could look cool. A messenger of God is no more, and largely he is no more simply because he couldn't keep quiet. As a Christian, you're required by the Bible and the Holy Spirit's prompting to say what, need, what needs to be said. And in case you're wondering, there's no promise that this obedience will feel good. Although it will be for your good and for the glory of God who has gifted you life, but it's not, it's not going to feel good. Oftentimes, but, but not always, Saying, 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 using your mouth for God's glory, saying is the precursor to doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Consider yourself forewarned, obediently opening your mouth will not conclude favorably every time on this side of heaven because we don't live in some computer-generated orb of pixie dust and make-believe. We don't live in a life full of avatars and anonymity. That's make-believe. No, this, this habitat that we live in is ripe with rulers and authorities and powers of darkness and spiritual forces. I don't know if you've experienced them yet, but they are here. And they are hell-bent to be expressed through brokenness. Brokenness is full of a world in which all of us are broken. And only Jesus can be like uh, Humpty Dumpty and put us back together again with some, some crazy spiritual gorilla glue. And so that all hearts and minds are clear and we're on one accord, I want to be uh, careful to say that the Bible doesn't encourage Christians to argue with everybody about everything. Amen, somebody. It's not a good thing to be that person who's just, you just, you just got to get them. You just got to argue with everybody about everything. When you do that, it says more about you than it will ever say about the opposition. On the other hand, though, we shouldn't dim or conceal our light 
in Christ in order to avoid opposition. As if Christ died, that we would win a popularity contest in his name. I don't know about you. I don't see that in the Bible. The challenge before us is to be rooted in the scriptures, committed to sober-minded responses to God, that we are, are willing, as it's necessary, to take up our cross. You're not responsible for your friend's relationship with God or lack thereof. You're not responsible for your parents' relationship with God or lack thereof. And I'll go even a step farther. You're not responsible for your children's faith and relationship with God or lack thereof. It's not your job to post or to text about everything under the sun. There are times, I say this to college students all the time, there are times when you just need to sit down, be humble, be quiet, and just listen and pray. Even so, what offends God should offend you. Did y'all catch that? What offends God, it it, it lays it out pretty clearly in Scripture. There's a whole bunch of things. What, What offends God should offend you. And what breaks God's heart should break yours. And sometimes you need to move past worry about your beloved reputation and and say what needs to be said, and, and not just say what needs to be said, but you need to say what needs to be said in Jesus' name, because that should be the only reason you're saying it. Back in October, while scrolling uh, through social media, uh, I was just minding my own business, scrolling through my feed, and I, and I noticed a long post, a long post that a student who'd uh, been in a semester-long guys-only Bible study that I led a few years ago had come out as gay, that he, he was celebrating the occasion of this coming out with a photo of he and his boyfriend kissing on, on this social media platform. Again, I was just minding my business, scrolling through, and was like, oh, that's interesting. From the college I, I served at in Michigan before we moved here to Langley, I'd, I'd known this young man since his first year in university, and, and because of that, Did you hear me? Because of that, because of that, it's when somebody I just grabbed off the street or didn't know from Adam, because of that context, I decided I wasn't going to just go on about my happy clappy business. I decided that even though I'm here in Canada, I'm going to email him. And so I did. This is uh, an excerpt of, of the email that I sent. Now, I didn't give you the whole thing, so there's some context. It's not like I just, this is where the email starts. I said, hey, how's it going? We moved to Canada, hope you're doing well, you know, et cetera. But, but this is uh, sort of getting down to the brass text of it. This is what I, I wrote. Given our interactions over the years, you may know that as an evangelical Christian, I see no way that the Bible affirms LGBTQ plus identities. Decisions we make, working out our own salvation with fear and trembling before a holy God. Philippians 2.12. I didn't write to suggest a bunch of biblical texts or book titles that might help you recalibrate your heart. And I surely didn't write to argue with you or render any degree of disappointment. I am a firm believer in letting people know where I stand as it's needed and appropriate on key topics This being one of them, but also extending an olive branch to be a sounding board 
or resource along the way to the extent that I can. So that is why I am writing. It isn't my job to change anybody. Human beings are ill-equipped for that work. It exists way above our pay grade. Navigating the turbulent waters of life as a young adult can be tough, regardless of how one sees sexual orientation or gender identity. So if I can be helpful, know that as a fellow brother in Christ, I am happy to. At the very least, I will be praying for you. God loves you. May his word bring continued conviction to all who believe. And I said some other stuff and said, peace out. If you've made up your mind that you are going to avoid suffering, the gospel is not going to reach very deep into you. If you've made up your mind, and only you can do that, if you've made up your mind that you are going to avoid suffering, you're like, all that cross stuff, I'm not about that kind of life. The gospel is not going to reach very deep into you. It costs something to say what you know God is compelling you to say. And being used by God always involves a fundamental degree of risk. For if it did not, what would be the point of faith? Do not. Do not go around trying to be a modern mini-me of John the Baptist. That is not what I want you to come away from with this message. Do not go around trying to, well, I got to get some honey and some locusts and I got to just, I got to tell people that I see, hey, you can't marry your brother. Don't, no, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. You do not need to be a mini-me of John the Baptist. You do, however, need to be yourself. Yourself, in Christ, unapologetically committed to God, the same God whose truth John the Baptist was beheaded for. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you guys. God, I am grateful for life. I'm grateful, God, that I didn't will myself to wake up this morning. God, I'm grateful that I made it my way to the house of the Lord with some gas in my vehicle, with some money in my bank account, God, with, with more than, than the reasonable use of my limbs. My mind is still working, God. I'm thankful for life. I'm thankful all the more, God, for life more abundantly that we have in your son, Jesus, that he he got on a spiritual Amtrak train and moved all the way from heaven down to this crazy broken place called earth. And God, he put on a coat of human flesh and he lived and bled and died and, and laid down his life, God, that, that we would be able to have new life, eternal life in you through him forevermore. God, I'm grateful for Jesus. God, I pray for this church. God, I pray that you would help us to be good stewards of the gift of salvation, that we would recognize, God, we cannot give salvation to anybody else, but we can present them the good news as a gift, God. Help us to do that, Holy Spirit. Help us to be responsible in that conviction. God, I pray, Lord, for this congregation as they continue with fin finishing the building and um, all the ways in which they want to be persecuted. Might we all be people, God, who are willing to be persecuted, to suffer, to carry our cross 
simply so that people would know your son, Jesus. And I pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus, Jesus the Christ, the one who someday is going to return, and who when he does, all knees will bow, and all tongues will confess that he and he alone is God. God, I pray in that strong, mighty name, and the people of God said, Amen. Thanks, you guys.